Hey friends, Nina here. You might notice this is the second school attack episode this month. Well, I decided that now, while the majority of schools are closed because of the pandemic, now is a good time to cover a disturbing topic like school violence. And I've been curious about our subject for a while. At the time of the incident back in the summer of 88, there was a big flurry of coverage. There hasn't been much in the years since. When I decided I was going to cover Lori Dan, I reached out to friends in suburban Chicago because I wanted to see what, if anything, they knew about her case. Turns out, I know someone whose family knew Lori and knew the Wassermans. The neighborhoods and the schools targeted by Lori were the ones that my friend and her family called home. Throughout the episode, I will interject the information I received about Lori and the Wasserman family via the Glencoe, Winnetka, Highland Park grapevine. And before we get into the story, there are some graphic descriptions of sexual assault and, of course, the murder of a child. Listener discretion is advised. Lori Dan is best known for the events that occurred on the last day of her life when she embarked on a murderous spree through the well-heeled northern suburbs of Chicago. She was born Lori Wasserman on October 18, 1957, the daughter of parents Norman and Edith Wasserman. Lori joined a brother who was five years her senior, and we will not be discussing her brother to protect his privacy. While she was born in the city of Chicago, Lori grew up in the neighboring communities of Highland Park and Glencoe, Illinois. If you aren't familiar with Highland Park or Glencoe, they are located north of Chicago, right on Lake Michigan. They are among the wealthiest communities not just in Illinois, but in the Midwest part of the United States. To help you picture where she grew up, Glencoe was the setting of the 1983 Tom Cruise film Risky Business and several scenes from Ferris Bueller's Day Off were shot in Glencoe. If you've seen a John Hughes film, like Home Alone, The Breakfast Club, or my personal favorite, Uncle Buck, you have an idea of what these neighborhoods are like. As a child, Lori Wasserman attended West Ridge Elementary School, and later Red Oak Middle School, where she had a reputation for being very quiet and exceptionally good at spelling peers would recall greeting her with a hello as they passed in the hallway, but Lori would just look at them in response to the greeting. From a young age, Lori struggled to connect with people and had very few friends. As a child, she was described as shy and quiet. Lori was an average-looking girl of average intelligence. While her parents, Norman and Edith, couldn't make their daughter smarter or more socially adept, they could improve her appearance. First, she saw the orthodontist who straightened her smile. Then, the Wasserman sent teenage Lori to a plastic surgeon. The surgery transformed Lori from average to attractive, and while their daughter might not be the smartest or the most outgoing and personable, she was now attractive, a petite five-foot-three with straight teeth, long brown hair, and dark eyes. Growing up, Lori struggled to make friends, but she never lacked a date on Friday night. As a teenager, she attended Highland Park High School for her freshman and sophomore years. Then, in the summer between her sophomore and junior year, 
Her parents purchased a luxurious five-bedroom home in Glencoe, and Lori transferred to a new high school with the move. I believe that the plastic surgery, which transformed her features to a more attractive version, occurred during the summer, when she was between schools. We could have a whole conversation here about the wisdom and ethics of plastic surgery for a teenager, but we can't say how Lori felt about the surgery. Was she excited about it? Was she looking forward to what was perceived as an improved version of herself? We also don't know the extent of the surgery. We don't know what changes were made to her face. As the mother of a teenage girl, I can't imagine agreeing to elective surgery for a child, but people have different comfort levels. For what it's worth, the Wasserman family was well off, and from what I heard, they selected a well-regarded and reputable surgeon to work on Lori's features. While in high school, Lori went out for the cheerleading squad, but she didn't make the cut. She showed little interest in other extracurriculars. For pocket money, she worked at the local Kmart store. She had boyfriends, but she didn't do well with other girls her age. She had few female peers in her social circle. Lori Wasserman flat out said to more than one person, quote, I don't have any friends. I don't know what to do. Yet when someone greeted her in passing, she would look at them blankly and not respond. Despite mediocre grades upon graduation from New Trier High School in 1975, Lori Wasserman headed off to college attending Drake University in Iowa. My friend who also grew up in this community says that New Trier was a highly regarded school, and she didn't find it surprising that even a mediocre student was able to head off to college after graduation. While a student at Drake, one of the girls from New Trier spotted Lori on campus. She was happy to see a familiar face, even if it was Lori Wasserman, who she didn't know very well. It turns out the two lived in the same building and had a class together. This student greeted Lori, introducing herself, reminding her of their acquaintance, and suggested that they walk to class together. Lori's response is odd. She basically agreed that they should walk together and tells her that she, Lori, doesn't have any friends and doesn't know what to do. The two young women continued in the same class and saw each other a couple of times a week for the duration of the term. Yet, Lori will have no memory of meeting this woman when they again cross paths. And we will get to that shortly. After completing her freshman year at Drake, Lori transfers to Arizona State University. She decided that she wanted to teach high school when she graduated, and she worked hard toward her goal. While at Arizona State, she pledged a sorority, Alpha Delta Pi, and while in Arizona, Lori embarked on the first serious romantic relationship of her life. When Lori Wasserman was a junior in college, she began dating a fellow student. He was an undergrad in the pre-med program. Lori thought their relationship was serious, and perhaps this guy, that he was the one. The name of this young man, this aspiring physician, is not made public. And despite her feelings for him, and her hopes for something long-term, Lori's behavior was becoming increasingly bizarre and unsettling. She was suspicious and controlling. Through her actions, she demonstrated a lack of trust in her boyfriend. 
Put off by her unpredictability and anger, he ended the relationship, and Lori struggled following the breakup. Remember, she's alone in Arizona. She's not one to have a close set of female friends to guide her through the abrupt ending of her first serious romantic relationship. A friend of Lori and this pre-med student would later say that he didn't see anything disturbing in the behavior of Lori Wasserman. Sure, she could be possessive and clingy, but according to this college acquaintance who was quoted in the June 5, 1988 Chicago Tribune, Lori was never a budding psychopath here in Arizona. If she was, we never saw it. In the summer of 1980, with the relationship over, rather than sticking things out in Arizona and earning those last credits needed for her degree, Lori's parents helped her pack her things and she returns home to Glencoe, Illinois. Lori will enroll at Northwestern University, intending to complete her studies there. But the change of scene and the change of schools was not enough to rally her. Lori was not in a good place mentally, and she dropped out of Northwestern without completing the requirements needed for her degree. In 1981, things aren't looking good for Lori Wasserman. Undecided about her future and grappling with emerging mental illness, Lori takes a summer job as a waitress at the Green Acres Country Club in Northbrook, Illinois. While working at Green Acres, she meets Russell Dan, the son of a prominent Highland Park family. Lori, a petite brunette in a figure-hugging waitress uniform, was hard to resist, and Russell asked for her number. Russell Dan, known as Rusty, was a catch. He was dark-haired and good-looking, and he came from money, likely more money than the Wassermans had. Rusty's family owned an insurance agency, and I don't mean a storefront office. I mean that the Dan name was on a prominent building in the community. Rusty knew Lori was a bit off, but he loved her, and after months of dating, he would propose to her in Boca Raton, Florida, while they were vacationing at her parents' second home. Lori Wasserman and Russell Dan married in September of 1982. At the request of the Wasserman family, the wedding was small. Rusty came from a big family and had many friends and business associates, but Lori was the only girl in her family and had no girlfriends to call on for the big day. While the festivities were lavish, the guest list was trimmed down. With financial help and support from their parents, the young couple was hardly struggling to establish a household. Lori's father gifts the newlyweds $15,000, which is about $40,000 in today's money. Dan purchased a spacious starter home in a good neighborhood, a place they could start their lives together and perhaps someday begin a family. On the outside, Lori Dan has it all, a handsome husband with a good career, a beautiful home, and a generous budget to furnish and decorate that house to her liking. What people didn't see were Lori's other issues. The mental health struggles that plagued her were not resolving. If Lori and her parents thought that a marriage and a home would improve her situation, they were wrong. Lori had the time and the means to furnish and decorate the house, but she lacked motivation. She couldn't focus. Rusty put in long days at the agency and looked forward to dinner with his pretty wife at the end of the day, but Lori couldn't complete basic household tasks like cooking or laundry. He would come home from work to find his wife on the sofa staring at the television, wet laundry hidden in random drawers, and instead of his dinner in the microwave, he would find Lori's cosmetics stashed there. 
One winter day, there was an event for the Dan family business. It was held at the Drake Hotel in Chicago. Think end-of-year holiday party. Men in suits and women in cocktail dresses. Now, remember the girl who went to high school with Lori? The girl who ran into her at Drake in Iowa? They had a class together and lived in the same building, so she said to Lori, hey, let's go to class together. And Lori said, I don't have any friends. I don't know what to do. This young woman, she was at this party with her husband. And when they were introduced to Lori and Rusty, she reminded Lori that they'd attended college together in Iowa. They'd had a class together. It's nice to see you again, she said to Lori Dan. In response, Lori looked at her blankly and didn't reply. It was like they'd never met before, even though they'd gone to high school and college together. Lori had nothing to say. Between her inability to relate to others in social situations and her bizarre behavior at home, Lori Dan appeared to be depressed and distracted. She was unable to complete simple tasks like laundry and cooking. She was also showing signs of obsessive-compulsive disorder. Now, people will use the term obsessive-compulsive or OCD in reference to quirks about themselves. But OCD is debilitating, and it can interfere with your ability to function day-to-day. Symptoms of OCD include intrusive or persistent thoughts that can't be ignored. In some people with OCD, these thoughts can lead to unwanted routines and behaviors that are rigid. If the person tries to ignore the thoughts or avoid the behavior, it can cause them distress. OCD is a challenging illness to live with, particularly if it's poorly managed or untreated. Russell Dan will later report that Lori would tap her foot when the car stopped for a traffic light. She also washed her hands repetitively. And while she fixated in some areas, when it came to self-care, she was unfocused and unmotivated. Rusty had parties, dinners, other work functions to attend, and he wanted his wife with him. But as the weeks and months went by, Lori wouldn't leave the house, not even with Rusty. He loved her, and he talked to her about what was going on, but it wasn't getting better, and he couldn't go on this way. He talked to Lori about the changes that he saw, about his concerns, but Lori said she didn't know what to do about it or how to get better. So he provided for the couple, and Lori spent her days in front of the television. When Lori did attempt to complete chores, the outcomes were bizarre and unsettling. She was known to run laundry through the washing machine, and when the cycle was over, she would stuff the still-wet garments and linens into closets and drawers where they would mold and mildew. The wet fabric also ruined the furniture containing it. Lori's grooming suffered as well, and this was an issue that would get worse as time went on. In 1985, after three years of marriage, Russell Dan moved out of their home, taking an apartment nearby. He said that Lori should return to Glencoe to her parents, and he put their home on Hastings Avenue in Highland Park on the market. To give you an idea of where and how Lori and Rusty lived, today this 2,700-square-foot home is valued at nearly $600,000. Within days of his departure, Rusty began receiving repetitive hang-up phone calls, sometimes dozens of calls in a day. The calls weren't limited to Russell. His parents and siblings were also getting them. 
While Lori was back home with her parents, a young divorcee, she wasn't happy about it. Just like when she broke up with her college sweetheart, Lori had no friends to guide her through the breakup. No one to take her out for drinks or an afternoon by the water to talk things through. Lori was back with her family, but Lori was alone. In April of 1986, about six months after Russell Dan left the marriage, Lori Dan filed a police report claiming that Russell broke into her parents' home and vandalized it. Police took a report, but nothing came of it. When questioned by police, Russell Dan denied the allegations and explained that the two were in the middle of a divorce. He was not arrested or charged. Days after Lori files this report with Glencoe Police, Lori Dan purchases a three fifty seven Magnum handgun. When police learn of the purchase, they go to the Wasserman home, where they talk with Lori's father, Norman Wasserman. In speaking with him, police strongly suggest that she not have access to the weapon. Wasserman refused to confiscate the gun, but he says he'll make sure it's secure. He'll make sure it's locked up in a safe. And listeners, make note of this, because it's going to come up later. In September of 1986, an unknown person broke into the apartment of Russell Dan in the middle of the night. They crept into the bedroom where Dan slept and stabbed him once in the chest with an ice pick. He survived the attack, using the phone to call an ambulance, and paramedics transported him to the hospital for treatment. Rusty was lucky. The ice pick missed his heart by inches. Police investigated the attempted murder, and Dan told them about his mentally unbalanced soon-to-be ex-wife and how he'd moved into the apartment as the divorce was processed. Police spoke with Lori Dan about the incident, and she denied involvement. And listeners... I am willing to bet cash that her parents gave her an alibi for the night of the attack. Following the stabbing, a store clerk came forward to say that she'd sold an ice pick to Lori. Despite the clerk reporting the sale, there were no witnesses placing Lori at the scene, so police decided to issue polygraphs to Russell and Lori. And in a bizarre twist, Russell Dan failed his polygraph, but Lori? Lori passed hers. Rusty Dan was upset. He wanted police to understand that someone, likely his soon-to-be ex-wife, broke into his home and stabbed him in the chest. Unfortunately, police aren't taking him as seriously as they should. You see, one of the doctors who examined Dan after the attack speculated that he could have stabbed himself. After all, he wasn't badly injured. Police decided they would not charge Lori Dan in this instant. Between the doctor's opinion of his injuries and the failed polygraph, I don't think law enforcement believed him. And here is where I should mention that it wasn't until the late 80s, maybe 88 or 89, that law enforcement stopped looking at polygraphs as some sort of magical device. But in 1986, when Lori passed the polygraph and Rusty failed, that was enough for police to decide that he was not telling the truth about what had happened. Also in 1986, about the same time that someone broke into Russell Dan's apartment and stabbed him in the chest, Lori decided she should look up her college sweetheart. When she finally connected with the nice pre-med student she'd dated while at Arizona State University, Lori found out that he was married. So she started sending letters to him and his family. She told him that she was pregnant with his child, which was ridiculous because she hadn't seen him in more than five years. 
When the letters didn't elicit the response she'd hoped for, Lori Dan stepped up her efforts. She contacted the hospital where her former boyfriend was employed. She told them that she'd been treated in the emergency room and he'd sexually assaulted her during an exam. And this accusation doesn't fly for a lot of reasons, starting with there's no record of her being in the hospital, and she was calling them from the suburbs of Chicago while he worked at a hospital in Arizona. Upset by the bizarre accusations and continued, persistent, unwanted contact from Lori Dan, the doctor first contacted the police, but that didn't help, so he got a lawyer involved. Lori's parents are again contacted by law enforcement and told that the harassment needs to stop. And this put a temporary end to her bizarre and distressing behavior toward the doctor and his family. In addition to placing frequent harassing calls to her college boyfriend, Lori was allegedly responsible for dozens, if not hundreds, of calls placed to the family of Russell Dan. Not just her soon-to-be ex-husband, but his sister and parents were recipients of numerous nuisance phone calls. At one point, Lori was taken into custody for the harassment, but charges were dropped due to lack of evidence. Lori seemed particularly fixated on Rusty's sister, Susie. And when Lori goes on her terrifying rampage in the spring of 1988, she will target Susie and her family. In April of 1987, Lori Dan told police that Russell, her soon-to-be former husband, had, quote, raped her with a steak knife. Lori was given a physical examination, which demonstrated that she had not been assaulted in this way. But again, Lori Dan is given a lie detector test. She passed it, just like she did after Rusty was stabbed in 1986. Police again speak to the Wassermans, who tell them that Lori is under the care of a psychiatrist for obsessive-compulsive disorder and a chemical imbalance. And listeners, I wonder, did the police again ask her parents about the location of that three hundred fifty seven handgun that Lori owned? The one that Norman Wasserman said he'd keep under lock and key? In May of 1987, after four years of marriage, the divorce of Lori and Rusty is finalized. Lori received a settlement of $125,000 in the divorce. That's almost $300,000 in today's money. Lori left the marriage, but she kept her name, Lori Dan. Oh, and as a parting gift to Russell Dan... In May of 1987, she reported to police that Russell Dan left an incendiary device at the home she shared with her parents. The wording is interesting. An incendiary device is something meant to start a fire. In 1987, fresh off her divorce, almost 30-year-old Lori Dan needed something to do with her days. She decided to try babysitting. She posted flyers at the Glencoe Library and the corner grocery store, and soon received calls for work. Lori watched children at several homes in the area, and, not surprisingly, her clients reported several bizarre incidents. These incidents included leather sofas being sliced open, rugs being cut apart, and garage door openers going missing. Lori, of course, denied any knowledge or involvement in the incidents, and her parents stepped in once again, offering financial restitution for the damaged items. Now, when I asked my friend from this area about this, what she tells me is that Lori was apparently an excellent and reliable babysitter for several families. I don't know if she only had issues with a couple of families, 
or if the incidents were blown out of proportion after the fact. But Glencoe, Highland Park, and Winnetka? This is a small community, and if she was truly causing a great deal of damage to homes and properties, word would have gotten around. And the babysitting is fine. She likes it. But Lori thinks maybe she should finish her degree, so she enrolls at Northwestern. Her father secures a private dorm room for her to live in on campus. Keep in mind, Lori Dan is almost 30 years old, and she is returning to dorm life where she will be surrounded by students aged 17 to 22. Living in a dormitory seems like an odd choice. Her return to school was a complete disaster. Lori's behavior was bizarre and disturbing. She would take meat and stuff it into couch cushions in the common areas. She was known to wander the hallways naked. She would also collect garbage and fill students' mailboxes with it. Lori's hygiene slipped, and she bathed infrequently. Her dorm room was filthy. The walls and furniture were stained, and puddles of urine on the floor. It was just a stinking, treacherous mess. The university called the Wassermans, and they said, Look, this is not working out. Please come get your daughter. Lori's dorm room was so disgusting that it was declared a health hazard and they had to bring in a special team to clean it. And while Lori did trash her room and fill it with waste and garbage, this did not get in the way of her sleeping habits. Lori would just go spend the night in her car. The situation at Northwestern is both incredibly disgusting and terribly sad, because it's clear that Lori Dan is profoundly disturbed. And rather than getting the psychiatric help that she needs, help that her parents could easily afford, her father once again gets out his checkbook and makes the problem go away. He pays for the damages and brings Lori back to the family home in Glencoe. And I have to ask, did anyone notice how troubled Lori was? Did anyone try to reach her? After the tragic events of May 1988, former husband shared with the press that He once had a telephone conversation after their divorce, and he told her that he knew that she stabbed him, but he didn't understand why. She said she didn't know what she should do. And he said, Lori, you need to get help. And Lori said, I know. So what do I do? Lori Dan came from a family with money, and she had every opportunity to get help and to receive treatment. And she could have lived a more normal life, but no one. No one stepped in and truly helped her. And how miserable it must have been to be Lori Dan, stinking and friendless, overwhelmed with persistent and intrusive thoughts that consumed her days and left a normal life out of reach. After she was banned from campus, Lori goes back to her parents' home with nothing but time on her hands, so she goes back to babysitting. Her bizarre and distressing habits continued. She was also stealing food from the families that she worked for. But I want to make note that there is no record I have found of Lori ever harming any of the children that she babysat. In the summer of 1987, Norman Wasserman rented an apartment for his daughter in Evanston, Illinois, near the campus of Northwestern University. Lori did not register for classes, but she spent her days riding the elevators in her building. She would be in the elevator for hours. Lori also wore gloves on her hands to avoid touching anything metal. Between riding the elevators and wearing gloves, 
you can assume that her obsessive-compulsive disorder is poorly managed. While living in Evanston, she was known to hang out at some of the fraternities, and it's possible that she was romantically linked to some of these fraternity brothers. While living in this off-campus apartment, Lori was being managed by a psychiatrist, but in November of 1987, not long after her 30th birthday, her parents moved her to student housing in Madison, Wisconsin. While in Wisconsin, she started several new treatment techniques. She saw a new psychiatrist, worked with a behavioral therapist, and began taking clomipramine. Clomipramine is also called anaphronil, and it is used to treat obsessive-compulsive disorder, and it is described as a tricyclic antidepressant. While living in Madison, Lori purchases a second handgun. She selected a reliable and classic weapon, a 32 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver. The new treatments and new medications and new providers, they weren't helping. Lori is still riding the elevators for hours at a time, flipping TV channels rapidly, and it was thought she developed an eating disorder as she weighed less than 100 pounds. In December of 1987, Lori decided to buy herself a gift, stopping by the local gun store where she selected a 22 caliber Beretta. She now owns three handguns, but remember, her father promised the 357 Magnum was locked up where she couldn't access it, just like police requested. Spoiler alert, Norman Wasserman was not honest with the police. In addition to gun ownership and elevator riding, Lori's hobbies included making dozens, if not hundreds, of phone calls each day. At the end of 1987, according to a piece in the Chicago Tribune, several friends and family members of Russell Dan asked to meet with local police to discuss ongoing harassing phone calls coming from Lori. And the calls weren't just hang-ups. The caller, thought to be Lori, would threaten to murder the wife or child of the person who answered the phone. Remember Lori's unhealthy obsession with Rusty's sister, Susie? Susie received a nearly constant barrage of calls, and threats were made against her young children. Lori's parents are asked to turn over their phone bills to further the investigation, but they did not comply with requests. This made it difficult to prosecute Lori for harassment. And listeners, prior to the advent of cell phones and other mobile technology, the service provider for your home phone line would send a paper bill each month and any calls outside of your immediate zone would be listed on the bill. It's not clear why this information wasn't available from the telephone company, and it's certainly possible that the Wassermans had legal counsel block attempts by law enforcement to access phone records. And remember that new course of outpatient mental health treatment Lori was receiving in Wisconsin? In March of 1988, Lori stopped attending appointments with her psychiatrist and therapist. Her psychiatrist and her father tried to persuade her to check herself into the hospital for treatment, but Lori refused. Weeks later, a janitor in the building where she lives enters a maintenance room, where he finds Lori Dan laying on the floor. She's under a trash bag, naked and curled in a fetal position. Lori is soaked in sweat. Her parents are contacted, and Lori Dan returns to her hometown of Glencoe, Illinois. The day after she returns to her parents' house, the FBI arrives in Madison, Wisconsin, to talk with her. They wanted to ask her about the death threats and the persistent phone calls, but Lori is gone. 
It's believed that she left Madison in the pre-dawn hours of May 16, 1988. The FBI got involved in this case because Lori was making threats to friends and family of Russell Dan and her college boyfriend in Arizona. These threatening and harassing phone calls crossed state lines. The FBI advised law enforcement in Madison, Wisconsin, that something is wrong with Lori Dan, and they thought that she owned or had access to guns. Lori Dan actually owned three guns and an ice pick, but she won't be arrested, and it does not appear that law enforcement made additional attempts to remove weapons from her home. And back in Glencoe, Lori suddenly becomes domestic. While she had rarely managed to cook for her husband when they were married, she's now baking and mixing and preparing things left and right. She's very busy in the kitchen. These efforts include making several trays of rice cereal treats that she will deliver to fraternity houses in Evanston, Illinois. These treats were special. See, when Lori was living in Madison, Wisconsin, she'd done a fair amount of shoplifting. She stole clothing and wigs, and she went to the hardware store where she stole packages of arsenic. And when she left Wisconsin to return home, she brought all of these items with her, and now she's using them. So the rice cereal traits are laced with arsenic. And listeners, I would have been in so much trouble because I cannot resist a good rice cereal treat. But apparently the addition of arsenic meant that the treats tasted terrible. And people who tried them, they might have a bite or maybe two before spitting them out and throwing them away. These poison snacks were dangerous. But fortunately, they were so gross that no one would eat them. So there is a little bit of good news here that she didn't manage to injure anyone with her attempts at poisoning. And speaking of poison, I've seen Lori's name mentioned as possibly being responsible for the Tylenol murders that rocked the Chicago area in 1982. But when you look back at Lori in 1982, she was engaged, she was planning her wedding. I think she was happy and mentally much healthier. And keep in mind, the Tylenol case was investigated thoroughly, and I don't believe there was anything connecting Lori to the poisonings. If you're curious about the Tylenol murders, I can recommend recently released podcast episodes by Trace Evidence and The Conspirators Podcast. Both of them have an episode about the Tylenol case that's worth checking out. At home in Glencoe, Lori is spiraling, and it's a downward spiral. She is not in a good place mentally or emotionally. She will visit a family on Forest Glen Drive that she'd worked for previously, and she asks if they need her to babysit again. And the family says, oh, um, sorry, we're actually moving out of state, so we don't need a sitter. But Lori tells them that there's a fair in Evanston the next day, and she could take the boys. It would be a treat. And the parents, they're super busy. They've got this move going on. They're packing. They say, you know what? That would be nice. So a plan is made for Lori to be back the next morning on May 20th to pick up these two boys. With the plan in place, Lori returns to the house and starts cooking more. She's making more tainted food. In addition to rice cereal treats, she's taking arsenic and mixing it into water and then drying it up with a syringe. And then she's using a syringe to inject the poison into juice boxes. Lori gets up early on May 20th and gets dressed. It's a very busy time. 
She's out of the house early and goes to the post office to mail a couple of packages of tainted treats. She also goes to houses in Winnetka, Highland Park, and Glencoe, where she leaves snacks and treats on people's doorsteps for them to find. Fortunately, her attempts to poison people are amateurish. Just like with her attempt to poison frat brothers in Evanston, no one is made ill by these drinks or treats. The packages that she'd mailed to her ex-husband Rusty Dan and to her psychiatrist, they did not consume the items that were sent to them. When Lori arrives to pick up the boys for their trip to the fair, she serves them milk that was tainted with arsenic. The boys only take a small sip of the milk and then pour it out in the sink when her back is turned. The milk, not surprisingly, tasted terrible. The boy's mother, Marion, is home that day doing chores and preparing for the move, while the boys are out with Lori. And Marion does not realize how sick Lori Dan is or what is about to happen in their small community. Instead of taking the boys to the fair as promised, Lori drives to Ravinia Elementary School in Highland Park. I know I mentioned a couple of times that Lori was obsessed with Susie Dan, her former sister-in-law. Well, Susie's children attend Ravinia Elementary School. When Lori arrives at the school, she opens an exterior door to the building and lights this plastic bag that's filled with gasoline. She lights it on fire and throws it into the building. Fortunately, it's not a successful bomb or incendiary device. There's just a small fire which is quickly put out and no one is injured in this attack. But for years after the event, the floor in the hallway where the burning bag landed was scarred and dark, which means that students filed past this reminder of Lori Dan for years. She leaves Ravinia School, and at 9.30, she arrives with the two boys at the Young Men's Jewish Council in Highland Park. Lori gets a gas can out of the trunk of her car and tries to enter the building, but she is stopped by a staff member. At this point, Lori runs back to her car where the boys were waiting. And it's important to mention that the Young Men's Jewish Council had a preschool. And this preschool is where her former sister-in-law, Susie, had sent her children. It sounds like the Young Men's Jewish Council is a little bit like a suburban YMCA, where it's a multi-purpose building with some athletic stuff and meeting rooms and, in this case, a preschool on site. With her attempted attack at the Young Men's Jewish Council thwarted, Lori drives the boys back home. Their mother is surprised to find them back so soon. When they arrive, she's in the basement doing laundry, and the boys come down the stairs to greet her. She talks with the boys for a couple of minutes about their morning before going upstairs to see Lori. But when the mother attempts to leave the basement, she finds that the stairwell is consumed with flames. Lori took the gasoline, poured it around the house, and set fire to the home, trapping the mother and her sons in the basement. The three of them are able to escape unharmed through a basement window. It's now 10.30 a.m. on May 20th, 1988. Lori leaves the house behind her in flames and drives to the local elementary school. This is Hubbard Woods Elementary. And it's very likely that as Lori arrived at the elementary school, she could hear sirens from the fire trucks going to put out the fire that she'd started in the neighborhood. Once inside the school, Lori is carrying a plastic bag with her three handguns. And again, remember how her police told her father they wanted Lori's guns and he would not surrender her weapons? But he said, look, I'll make sure they're locked up. 
Well, Norman Wasserman was not honest with police. Lori still had access to these guns and the ammunition, and she had all three of them with her on May 20th at Hubbard Woods. Lori follows a student into a washroom and comes face to face with six-year-old Robert Trossman. She shoots him once, drops the gun on the floor, and heads down the hall. In the quiet school, the sound of the gunshot is loud, but no alarm is raised, because everyone assumes the sound of the report was everything other than what it was. Thankfully, other students come across Robert very quickly and get help for him almost immediately. As Lori wanders the school, she finds an open classroom and walks in. She takes a seat near the substitute teacher who is in the middle of a lesson for the class. The teacher, Amy Moses, does not understand why Lori Dan is suddenly in her room. She thinks that maybe Lori is a parent or another staff member. And she continues teaching while Lori sits at a table at the front of the classroom. After watching the teacher and students for a moment, Lori produces a gun and orders the children to move to one side of the room. Then Lori starts firing, and the teacher, struggling with Lori, tries to get the gun. She tries to stop the shooting. But before she can, Lori Dan will murder eight-year-old Nicholas Corwin and wound five other students before running out of the building. While Nicholas is the only fatality, the other children who were shot are seriously injured. Lori Dan is in a complete panic as she drives away from the school. She turns her car at high speed down a dead-end street, and she realizes too late the road is ending and loses control of the car, crashing into a tree. She gets out of her damaged vehicle and strips off her blood-soaked shorts. Now, I found this puzzling that her shorts were covered in blood, because I don't know where the blood came from. It's really not explained. Was she injured? Was she menstruating? Or did the blood come from one of the children that she shot? Lori takes a plastic bag out of the car, wraps it around her waist, and runs up to a nearby house, entering through the back door. Inside the home, she finds Ruth Andrews and her son, 20-year-old Philip Andrews. Philip, who has just returned from college, is a student athlete. He's a swimmer. Ruth and Philip look at wild-eyed, half-naked Lori, who tells them that she's been raped and she shot her attacker, but the police don't understand and the police don't believe her and she needs help. The Andrews are very concerned and want to help this desperate, disheveled woman who's in their home. Ruth Andrews comforted Lori and got her a clean pair of pants to wear. At this point, it's 11 a.m., and the Andrews have realized that Lori well, there's something really wrong with her, and they can hear their neighborhood filling with sirens. They realize that the police response unfolding at the school near their home, it's because of Lori Dan. Philip's father comes home early from work because he's concerned about the news reports about what happened in the neighborhood, and he enters the home to find Lori Dan holding his wife and son at gunpoint. Meanwhile, police surround the Andrews' home. They are using a bullhorn to try and contact Lori. They're asking her to surrender, and she ignores them. She wants no part of it. The Andrews family ends up trapped with Lori Dan for hours, and during that time, she called home, and her mother begged her to turn herself in, to not hurt anyone else. Young Philip Andrews took the phone and talked to Edith Wasserman, telling her that she should come pick up Lori, that she should come and help her. And Edith refuses, saying, I don't drive. And listeners, 
When I saw this, I just about lost my shit. There are a hundred different ways that she could have gotten to Lori. She could have put a stop to the carnage right then and there. Instead, Edith did nothing to help her youngest child, and she did nothing to help the Andrews family. Edith Wasserman did nothing. And I'm angry about it. Lori's father, Norman, eventually arrives at the scene, and he tries calling Lori at the house, and then he talks to her through the bullhorn. Even Rusty Dan showed up. He's hoping he can persuade Lori to do the right thing and stop the carnage. In the late afternoon, Lori is distracted, and Philip Andrews gestures to his mother to leave the house. He wants his parents to make a run for it, and he struggles with Lori in the kitchen for control of the gun. During the struggle, the gun goes off, and 20-year-old Philip Andrews is shot in the chest at close range. The bullet punctures both lungs, his esophagus, stomach, and pancreas. Philip staggers out of the house onto the lawn. He is seriously wounded. His parents, who made it out of the house safely, they run to him and carry him away from the home, getting him to an ambulance. Philip Andrews will survive the shooting, and when he recovers, he completes his education and joins the Federal Bureau of Investigation, where he will spend his entire professional career working to stop violence in schools and communities. But back to Lori. After she shot Philip, she runs upstairs hiding out on the second floor of the Andrews' home. Police don't want to run in because they're afraid that Lori has a bomb or more of the makeshift Molotov cocktails like the gasoline-soaked bag that she threw in the school. What they don't realize is that Lori had turned the gun on herself. The standoff and the strange life of Lori Wasserman Dan are finally over. When Lori's body is recovered from the Andrews' home, She is wearing a University of Arizona Medical School t-shirt. As May 20th comes to an end, the police want to interview the Wassermans, but the request is declined. Law enforcement attempts to search Lori's bedroom in the Wasserman home, but only a quick search is allowed before they are asked to leave the house. The Wassermans and their attorneys remind police that this family is grieving the death of their daughter, and now is not an appropriate time to trouble them. Despite needing time to grieve, the Wassermans manage to throw out or destroy almost everything from Lori's bedroom. They leave little for police to look at when they are finally granted access to the home. Following the horrific and terrifying events of May 20th, Chief Herbert Tim of the Winnetka Police is livid. He wants to know how someone like Lori Dan had access to multiple weapons. And he is asking just one of the many questions the community is left with in the wake of this tragedy. Not long after the events of May 20th, 1988, Norman and Edith Wasserman leave Illinois for good, relocating to Florida. Being 1,300 miles away in Boca Raton allows the Wassermans to decline multiple requests to return for Illinois for depositions, hearings, and interviews. Lori's family never spoke to the press or to the families affected by her rampage. They chose to hide behind their lawyers and shield themselves from scrutiny while blocking others from receiving long-awaited answers. The only statement her parents offered was issued a few days after the events of May 20th, quote, Mrs. Wasserman and I reach out to all the families and their suffering. We suffer with you. Our prayer is that time will help alleviate the pain. If the victims or their families were hoping for an apology or for an explanation, they weren't going to get one. 
Lori's former husband, Russell Dan, who survived a murder attempt at the hands of his soon-to-be ex-wife, became an advocate for victims of domestic violence. In an interview with the Chicago Tribune, he said, quote, I was getting attacked, I was being stalked, and people wouldn't take me seriously. It was scary, and I was much stronger than she was. I can't even imagine what it must be like to be a woman in that situation. In 1989, Joel and Linda Corwin, the parents of eight-year-old Nicholas Corwin, murdered by Laurie Dan in his classroom, sued the Wassermans for damages. They believe that the Wassermans' negligence and refusal to seek inpatient treatment for their daughter resulted in the death of their son. The Wassermans obtained legal counsel attempting to avoid payouts, but they were unsuccessful. The Corwins eventually agreed to a settlement when they felt that the court made it clear that the Wassermans shared responsibility for their actions of their daughter on May 20, 1988. Rusty Dan eventually moved on. He met a nice woman who, oddly enough, was also named Lori, but her name was spelled L-O-R-I, and the two married. But this Lori, she opted to keep her maiden name. Norman Wasserman died in 2006, and Lori's mother Edith passed in 2010. The three members of the Wasserman family are buried at Shalom Memorial Park in Arlington Heights, Illinois. The people of Highland Park, Winnetka, and Glencoe still remember May 20, 1988. They don't think about it often, but it's there, under the surface. Children who lost their sense of safety at school, and parents and families who suddenly didn't recognize the community they called home. Already Gone will return on Friday, May 1st, with a new episode, The Murder of a Young Woman from Michigan. And I selected this upcoming case specifically because she was a student at Arizona State University at the same time Lori Dan was a student at Arizona State. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind this week's episode of Already Gone. As we mark our fourth anniversary this month, I am filled with gratitude for you, the listener. And in this time of uncertainty, I hope you are healthy. And, as always, please, be safe.